So why should my friend John become a Christian? John uh, owns his own business, makes good money, drives high-end cars, lives up the hill in Laverne in a gated community, uh, has a wonderful wife, has uh, three young sons. Well, they're all in their 20s now, so they're not as young. But uh, John's a happy guy. Uh, he's held in high esteem in the business community and uh, high esteem in the circle of the cycling community that, uh, I, where I connected with John. Uh, He's got a great life. So why should John become a Christian? What's he lacking? What's he missing? Salvation? Jesus? Those are always the right answers, right? You know, I, I think so often we, we forget that regardless of a person's place in life, whether they are making bazillions or whether they're living on the riverbed, whatever their station in life, they share one thing in common. And it's what the Bible calls the sin virus, right? More critical, more dangerous, more damning than HIV virus, COVID-19 virus, is the S-I-N virus. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is infected with that virus. And that's why every single person on the planet needs to know Jesus. And so I want to circle back this morning and answer some questions that have arisen out of our study last week in Mark chapter 4. As we looked at the four soils together, I want to come back and circle around and answer th three questions if I have time this morning that kind of arise out of our conversation last week. Some people are invited to try Jesus. Take Jesus for a test drive. You ever taken a test drive in a car? Many times. When you go take a test drive in the car, what is your level of commitment when you get inside the car, shut the door, put on your seatbelt, start the car? What is your level of commitment to purchase that vehicle when you get ready to take it for a test drive? Well, zero, zero, not much. Yeah. So what good is the test drive? We don't, we don't take Jesus for a test drive. I've heard people use that expression so many times in it. It kind of makes me, well, it makes me very nervous. We don't take Jesus for a test drive. We saw that in the four soils, I think, as we come and revisit that this morning. Other people, instead of taking Jesus for a test drive, they kind of add Jesus on to their life as it currently exists. Nothing changes. We just add Jesus. We add Jesus to what we already believe. We add Jesus to what, how we already behave. Nothing changes. I remember many years ago, one of the uh, actresses who was very popular at that time, probably I'm going back into the 70s, um, the rumor had come out that Suzanne Summers had become a Christian. And she was responding in an interview setting on television to this question about, is it true that you've become a Christian? And I remember being dumbfounded with her answer when she said, Yes, it's true I've become a Christian, but it's not going to change the way I live my life. 
Really? So I want you to come with me again to Mark chapter 4, and uh, I want to read this passage again. And then I'm going to try to tackle three questions that have arisen this week uh, because of the time we shared together last week in this chapter. Jesus here is telling a story, telling a parable. He draws right out of the agricultural setting of his day, the, the agricultural setting of planting seeds and hoping for a crop. In Mark chapter 4, verse 1, he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell onto the good soil. As they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop of 30, 60, 100 fold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And so the first question I'd like you to think about with me this morning is, How does soil become good soil? Is it possible for hard soil to become good soil? Or rocky soil to become... What is it in our spiritual encounters with people that enables the soil to be good? What causes that to happen? What's that? Fertilizer, yeah, how do you, how do you, you gotta, you gotta dig up the ground before you do the fertilizer thing, though, right? You gotta kinda plow it up and turn the soil and whatever. So, how does that happen in the spiritual world where we're seeking to plant seeds in the lives of people? We're plant, we're, we're praying and hoping to plant gospel seeds. Well, there's two answers, I think. One is, God has a role in causing soil to become good. God has a role. So what does God do to make soil good? Well, there's a couple of passages of Scripture that occur to me as I've thought about this. 
Um, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father unless what happens? The Father draws him. And so there's a, there's a, the Father drawing people to himself. It's not your responsibility, my responsibility to get people to connect, to have it make sense. Our job is to do what? Plant the seeds, cast the seeds. And so, not only does the Scripture say that, that um, God draws people to Himself, in John chapter 16, Jesus said this, verses 8, 9, and 10, When the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those are kind of three critical things that people need to be confronted with, right? They need to be confronted with the reality of sin, They need to be confronted with the reality of righteousness in contrast to sin and the fact that there's going to be judgment. So if God draws people to Himself, breaks up that soil, and the Holy Spirit is convicting people of sin and righteousness and judgment, what's the part that we play? Again, we we need to be casting seeds. We need to be praying for people that we're praying that God would bring to Himself. People in our circle, whether they're relatives, whether they're friends, whoever they are, that's one of the ways to break up the soil, right? How many of you are praying someone that's not yet come to know the Lord? All of us ought to be praying, right? Hopefully, we are. The other thing that occurs to me as as we share the Gospel is one of the great challenges you and I encounter in sharing the Gospel with other people And it's this challenge that I think oftentimes hinders the breaking up of the soil and making the soil good. Is that we need to become more more committed to sharing the bad news along with the good news. We tend... This is just kind of my personal observation. This isn't 100% valid, okay? But I've noticed a tendency for us to avoid words like judgment, sin, God's wrath, those kind of things. We like to talk about the good stuff. God loves you. God wants to have a relationship with you. That's good news, right? But there's there's also bad news. And, And this is one of the fallacies, by the way. I've come to this conclusion in my life because I've experienced this personally. It's very real to me. One of the fallacies of what is commonly known as friendship evangelism is we have this idea that we need to cultivate a friendship over a period of time and kind of earn the right to speak to someone about the Lord. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that most of my life. Well, the problem is you cultivate a friendship with someone and you get to know that person, you like that person, they like you, and now you start talking to them about sin, Judgment, God's wrath. What is your fear? You're going to lose a friend. Rejection, exactly. And so, somewhere in our thinking about this scattering of seed, there, there, there needs to be this balance. People need to understand the good news that God loves them and wants to have a relationship with them. But they, they need also to understand and fully embrace the bad news. Because what happens so oftentimes is this soil thing... People come to Jesus for all the wrong reasons because of the way the gospel is shared. People come to Jesus because they have physical problems and and are looking for healing or or strength. Uh, They've got a marriage that's in trouble and they're looking for solutions and help to their marriage. 
they're having financial pr- problems. People come to Jesus looking for all these problems to be solved. And I think it's important to remember when we think about these four soils, Jesus did not die on the cross to fix people's marriages, to fix their drug addiction, and to fix all these problems. He does that, right? That wasn't very good. Yes, I heard Ed and nobody else. He does those things in people's lives, right? Yes, He does. He's done done those things in, in so many lives. But when Jesus died on the cross, the whole reason He went to the cross was why? S-I-N virus needed a cure. Needed a cure. That's why Jesus went to the cross. And I think of so many passages of Scripture that remind us of the consequences of sin and the reality of God's judgment and God's wrath. And very few of us really enjoy and celebrate reading those kind of passages, right? They make us nervous. You know, Paul stood on Mars Hill talking to those, those Greeks. And he talked to them about the fact there's a, there's a point of the day. You know, God's been patient. He's been waiting. But He's appointed a day that's coming. The day of, of judgment. You think of passages of Scripture that talk about the reality the reality of sin and God's wrath and judgment. I think of simple passages like, all we like sheep have gone astray. Where's that one found? Isaiah, good book, chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, and He laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Um, That's a simple reminder. How about Jeremiah's words? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. One of the modern translations says, desperately sick. Who can know it? And the Scripture goes on and on. Have you ever read Romans chapter 3, by the way? You know, if you've never read Romans chapter 3, this is a tough passage when you think about the reality of... um, If I can get my Bible open here. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. There's none righteous... Not even one. I'm in verse, where am I at? Verse 10, if you're trying to track with me. Uh, There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. What percentage of the population of the United States of America, or literally the whole world, what percentage of the population believes that they're good people? Everybody. Everybody believes they're good. By what standard? Their standard. And so the Scripture says there's none good, no, not one. And, and aren't you glad that that passage goes on? And I close my Bible, I've got to go find it again. Uh, that passage goes on. And in verse, oh, let's jump back down to verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Aren't you glad it doesn't stop there? Because verse, you know, I I memorized Romans 3.23 when I was like in seventh grade. And it was quite a while before I realized that verse 24 follows verse 23. Anybody ever notice that? 
Yeah. And so verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, and he consistently does this. We're going to look at Ephesians 2 in a minute to see this again. But he, he puts the good news and the bad news side by side. Because he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And who is it that is the all? Verse 24 says, It's those who have been justified really by His grace. And, and so, Paul puts the good news and the bad news together. That's how you break up the soil and make it good. The, the bad news makes the good news make sense. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul expresses it this way. One of those powerful statements. Um, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That is bad news. But in this context, is Paul talking about the present, the future, or the past? Talking about the past. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that's why he goes on in verse 4, my favorite word in the Bible, but, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. That's where you sing a hallelujah right there, right? By grace you've been saved, raised up with Him, seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And so the soil becomes good... Because God's actively convicting people of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the soil becomes good because we're faithful in scattering seeds of the gospel. And we're sharing with people the bad news so the good news makes sense. The soil needs to be broken up. You know, the whole, the whole of, of Scripture and the whole message of salvation is that we desperately needed a cure for a problem, right? You and I have just lived through this 15, 16, I've lost track of the months, of COVID-19 and the constant promise of vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. And the majority of the population was waiting, anxious to get the vaccine. I had friends of mine saying, I'll be first in line. And I said, go ahead. <laughs> go this is a vaccine. This is a cure that we need, right? It's a cure we need. And it's a cure that my friend John needs, even though he drives high-end cars, lives in a great gated community, has a great business, has a great life. Every single person on the planet needs to know Jesus. And that's why what, what Jesus is expressing here, the sower went out to sow and sowed the Word. And the criticalness of us faithfully scattering seed. God's responsibility 
is to draw people, convict people. Our responsibility is just faithfully scatter the seed. Faithfully scatter the seed. Praying that God would break up the soil and, and make the soil good. One of the questions also that came up after last week's message was, as we talked about the four soils, the question comes up, so if you've got these four kinds of soils, and the first soil, the hard soil, the non-responsive soil, um, indicates a non-responsive heart, that person clearly is not, a believer is not saved, right? If you have the rocky soil where it springs up immediately and in Jesus' parable, the sun comes out and scorches it, he explains that in terms of uh, suffering or persecution and that seed withers and dies and produces no crop. Um, That person clearly is not saved, is not a believer. And then you have the third soil where the seed has fallen. There's a new word for you. Write that one down. The seed has fallen. The seed has fallen among the thorns and the weeds around the edge of the field. And the thorns and the weeds crowd out the seed. It can't get sunlight. And again, it's an immediate response. But again, it fails to produce a crop. There's no fruit. And that third soil, third soil... That person also is not saved, right? Tracking? So we finally get to the good soil where the, the seed sprouts, it puts down roots, it produces fruit. Jesus says sometimes it's 30%, others 60%, 100%. It's only one of the four soils that is genuinely born again and genuinely saved. So how does somebody know for sure... How does somebody know for sure that they're really born again? How does somebody know for sure that they're really saved? There you go. We talked about that last week, Linda. It's all about fruit. And for much of my life, much of my experience, and my observation in the lives of other people, is too often our confidence about our relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, All is dependent upon the fact that I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I raised my hand, I got baptized, I did this, I did that. And I believe what the Bible teaches, and this is the whole point of Jesus' parable, is it's the fruit production in a life that demonstrates the reality of salvation. Does that make sense? I hope it does. And so last week I suggested to you there's there's different kind of fruit that the Bible talks about. We spent some time looking at this list of fruit. And uh, I think Dave's going to put it back up here for us in a minute. Um, John the Baptist said, there needs to be fruit in your life that's consistent with repentance. There needs to be fruit that demonstrates the reality that you've turned your back on sin and turned toward the Lord. You've repented and put faith and trust in Jesus. Um, fruit is good works. We saw that in Ephesians 2.10. Uh, fruit is righteousness, holiness. Seeking to obey and follow Jesus. That fruitfulness in my life. Uh, we talked about fruit being the attitudes of the Holy, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, patience. I'm missing one. There's a whole list there. 
You know, are, are those things being generated in my life? Are they being demonstrated? I, I'm still working on the patience thing, okay? I, I, you know, we're, st- we're still working. Uh, fruit is gratitude and praise. Jesus said fruit is also our efforts to spread, spread seeds, to share the gospel. Jesus said, I've chosen you that you should go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit would do what? Remain. So it's the fruitfulness of my life that is the demonstration of the genuineness of my faith. It's a good thing that I can point back in my life like many of you can. And you can pinpoint a a moment of time where you prayed and confessed sin and invited Jesus to be the Savior of your life. You know, I, I can pinpoint that moment in my life back at the age of about six in a good news club in the living room of my home with my mother after that good news club. I, I can point to that. But it's the fruitfulness of your life and my life that demonstrates whether we're really followers of Jesus. By the way, when you think about fruitfulness... Um, How attractive are those things to unsaved people when they're being demonstrated consistently in your life and my life? should be pretty attractive, the fact that I'm a person who's grateful and manifests gratitude. I demonstrate love and joy and and those qualities of the Holy Spirit. Um, those, Those are attractive things. Matthew 7, I referred to this in my closing prayer last week, but I want to read this passage because this is one of the most, I I call it one of the scariest passages in all of the Bible. Jesus is talking about fruitfulness in Matthew chapter 7. And he says, beware of the false prophets. I'm in verse 15, Matthew 7. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. How do you recognize false prophets? Fruits. Isn't that interesting? Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, are they? No. Nor figs from thistles? No. So every good tree bears what kind of fruit? Good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Anybody here ever cut down a tree because it stopped bearing fruit? Died? Yeah, it happens. It's exactly what Jesus is describing. There's no no fruit, throw it out. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and in your name uh, serve on the church elder board and in your name teach Sunday school in your name serve as an usher in your name. And, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so one of the scariest, I think one of the scariest passages in the Bible is this passage that talks about fruitfulness or lack thereof. 
What is it that demonstrates the genuineness of a repentant heart that's turned and put its faith in Jesus? Fruitfulness. And so the question, and I suggested this last week, on the one hand, we ought to be examining our own lives for fruit, right? Is that fair? How fruitful is my life? How, how, how am I doing? In that? You know, how fruity am I? And Tutti Fruity? Who said that? Was that, was that you, Mike? Tutti Fruity. Um, and so it's fair to be a fruit inspector in my own life. And I think it's fair also as I look around to be a fruit inspector in the lives of others. Do they really know Jesus? So I've met many, many people who claim to be Christians and there's not a whole lot of evidence that I've been able to observe. Now, only God knows. I said that last week. I'll say it again. Only God knows. He's the ultimate judge, right? Roy's, Roy's not the, the all-knowing one. Hardly. But still, how fruitful. And so, the fruitfulness is the evidence of a genuine conversion experience. So then there's a third question that kind of flows out of this. So then, if... If someone is a true believer, if someone has genuinely been saved and their life is demonstrating this fruitfulness, so does that mean that person no longer sins? Yeah, there's heads back there shaking like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does the Bible talk about that at all? Read, read 1 John sometime. <laughs> read 1 John sometime. Because that's, that's kind of John's theme as he, he wrote that little epistle. If you say this, uh, you're calling God a liar. If you say you have no sin, uh, you say God is a liar. The truth's not in you. I remember many years ago when I was pastoring our church out in Alta Loma, we had an opportunity at the street fair. Every week at the street fair in the city of Upland, we would set up a table and an easy up and a booth, and we had some gospel tracts, and we had some visual things to kind of draw people in for conversation and uh, we over the years that we were there we had amazing spiritual conversations on the street it was a fun fun time but i'll never forget one night uh, a guy came to our table and uh, in the conversation he informed us that he was a christian he was a follower of jesus and he was perfect he never sinned and uh, we, we tried to challenge that a little bit and he was very adamant and very convinced that he was perfect and never sinned um, I've only met, I think, in my lifetime about three people that uh, would say that. Um, I cannot say that, okay? And I'm confident that, that you can't either. Um, it's not a matter of uh, whether or not we're going to fail, whether or not we're going to sin, whether or not we're going to fall short. The, uh, the reality is, as First uh, John chapter 2 says, if we sin, what? We have a... Advocate with the Father. We have a defense attorney. Aren't you glad for Jesus, the defense attorney, when you fail and fall short and disappoint God? And, yeah. So that's the, re- that's the reality. And so salvation means I've come into a new relationship with Jesus. Are you in a different relationship with Jesus today than you were before you came to faith? Absolutely. You have a new relationship to Jesus. Uh, I'm assuming in that new relationship to Jesus, I have a new relationship to sin. I now hate what God hates, right? That ought to be kind of part and parcel of who I am now. 
I have a, I have a new relationship with sin. I, I have a new relationship with Jesus' commands. Our theme this year is what? Following Jesus. And we've prayed and said we want to follow Jesus a little more closely. We want to love Jesus a little more deeply. We want to honor Him a little more consistently in our lives. This, this is our year of following Jesus. Well, when Jesus talks about following Him, He says things like, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. And, and that's a theme that's repeated, repeated a lot um, in John chapter 14 is that verse, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Later in that chapter, in verses 21 to 24, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. We have a, we have a, a new relationship to sin and a new relationship to Jesus' commandments. If we're seeking to follow Jesus, then our response to His commands ought to be what? Yes. <laughs> yes, Lord. I've had a couple of conversations with my son. He's been in the Navy almost 22 years. He gets to retire end of January, thankfully. But every once in a while, he and I will have these conversations about what the Navy is asking him to do. The Navy wants him to do this. The Navy wants him to do that. And my son has told me more than once, a dad, they call them commands, not suggestions. And uh, you know, commandments imply our obedience and, and our response. We have a new, re- new relationship to Jesus. And so, you and I are in process, right? Are you in process? Okay, you're, 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 you haven't fully arrived yet, right? The Apostle Paul said, I'm pressing on, right? Are you pressing on? Okay. So, Paul says in Philippians 1.6, what does that verse say? He who began a good work in you will continue it, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, who's responsible to begin that salvation work in your life and my life? Who, 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 who accomplished that? God did. Jesus did. Not my doing, not your doing. We're we're all clear on that, right? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. And so, God got this thing started in your life and my life. And whether that was uh, 65 plus or minus years ago in my case, or just a few years ago, or whatever in your life. God's the one responsible for getting it started. And He's going to carry you through. He's going to bring you through to how far? All the way to the end. He's going to carry you through. By the way, the Bible kind of suggests more than once that that ultimately is the proof of the genuineness of salvation because we we persevere to the end. But it's all about God at work. Did, Did we sing that song this morning about God being at work? It's all about God being at work. So He's at work in your life and my life. And what's he up to? What's his goal? What is God's goal between the time you come to faith in Jesus and the time you arrive in heaven? What is God's goal? <laughs> There's a bunch of stuff you could add in that bucket, right? But in Romans 8, verse 28 and 29... 
Paul says God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And surprise, surprise, verse 29 follows verse 28, where it says that those who are called, those who have been predestined, that we might be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God's up to in your life and my life. Tom, Jesus wants to make you, or God wants to make you a little bit more like Jesus every day. You good with that? Sounds good, right? He's, he's got a lot of work to do in your life. Got a lot of work to do in your life. Got a lot of work to do in my life. But, but that's what God is up to. He's conforming us, shaping us, molding us to be more like Jesus. That's the goal. That's the goal. He started the work. He's going to complete the work. And He's in the process of making you and me more like Jesus. When we finally get to heaven, I guess we'll be sin-free, right? That'll be a great day. Totally delivered from the very presence of sin. There's no sin in heaven. Until then, that's going to be a struggle. That's going to be a challenge. There's a passage in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses... Two and three, where John says, uh, little children, or now we are the children of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So what are the odds of you and me finally, ultimately becoming like Jesus? What are the odds? not a trick question. We are not yet what we ought to be, but when we see Him, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. What are the odds that someday you and I will be exactly like Jesus? 100%. There you go. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. And so I think about this whole thing of, of soils. I think of questions that are raised in the hearts and minds of of us as followers of Christ as we look at the four soils. The bottom line in this whole four soils thing is we need to be scattering seeds. We need to be scattering seeds of the gospel. We need to be sharing with people the good news and the bad news. The bad news is bad, but the good news is awesome. And the reason the good news of Jesus' death and sacrifice on the cross makes sense is because of the virus, the SIN virus, that we are all plagued with. And so we need to be faithful in scattering those seeds and cultivating conversation opportunities with people. And whether those opportunities come with total strangers that we encounter in a small window of time, or whether those conversations happen with friends and family that we've known for decades, Are you looking every day, are you praying every day for opportunity to scatter seed? And are you looking every day, hoping to find good soil? The good soil is out there. God's at work preparing soil, convicting people of sin and righteousness and judgment. We need to do our part. This song occurred to me this week as I was thinking about these things. 
Steve Green recorded this, I don't know, 30 or 40 years ago now, maybe. Every day as they pass me by, I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries. Only Jesus hears. What's the next line? People need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, He's the open door. People need the Lord. When will we realize people need the Lord? We are called to take His light to a world where wrong seems right. Boy, you and I live in that world today, don't we? Wow. What could be too great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? Through His love, our hearts can feel all the grief they bear. They must hear the words of life only we can share. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, He's the open door. People need the Lord. When will we realize that we must give our lives for people need the Lord? Lord, I thank You for this parable of, of Jesus. I thank You for the reminder of these four soils. And I thank You for the, the truth of Scripture about fruitfulness. And I'm thankful that as I look out over, over this group, I look out over fruitful lives, fruitful people, lives that demonstrate Your presence and Your power, lives that demonstrate the reality of, of repentance and faith. And Lord, I pray that You might stimulate within our, our hearts and minds Tomorrow, today, this week. Just a deeper realization of the simple truth that people need the Lord. People need the cure you have found. People need the solution to the sin problem. People need to know the truth about Jesus. About the forgiveness of sin. About eternal life. And so, Lord, remind us in this moment, remind us in the days ahead of those simple words. People need the Lord. Do that in each of our lives is our prayer together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.
That's a good reminder this morning as we go into a world that desperately needs to know about Jesus. Every hour, every minute, every second, we need Jesus in our lives, don't we? We truly, truly do. So as you go out those doors this morning, go in His power, go in His grace, celebrate His mercy in your life, and extend that mercy, extend that grace to others, and scatter some seeds along the way. Can you do that? Let's do that together this week.